Welcome to the Brookings Cafeteria, a podcast about ideas and the experts who have them. I'm Fred Dews. In this episode, my colleague Bill Finan speaks with Les Gelb, the co-author of a Brookings classic, The Irony of Vietnam, The System Worked. Also, a new installment of Steve Hess Stories, wherein Steve recounts meeting a very famous Hollywood celebrity. And finally, former Education Secretary and now Brookings non-resident Senior Fellow Arnie Duncan reflects on first coming to Washington and what he accomplished as Education Secretary. The Irony of Vietnam was first published in 1979 when Les Gelb was a Brookings scholar. The book has been reissued in the Brookings Classic Series. Over to you, Bill. Thank you, Fred. Les Gelb, welcome. Good to be here. Your book with Richard Betts is about the Vietnam War, which was, until Afghanistan, America's longest war. I want to ask you first to explain the book's title, because unlike many book titles, it is both provocative and captures the book exactly. Well, not only does it do that, uh, but it causes great confusion (laughs) among the readers, uh, because the first reaction is, of course, that uh, this is a book that says this war was a success. It was a great thing. The point is the, the opposite, really. Uh, The irony is that it was bound to turn out to be that kind of war, an unhappy war for us, an unsuccessful war, uh, because our political system, the way we looked at the world, the way our bureaucracy operated, all confounded us about what our interests really were and whether or not we could really win this war at any reasonable cost. And it turned out, of course, the irony is that all those things pointed toward deeper and deeper involvement, pointed toward not losing, and they all turned out to be terribly costly and wrong. When the book first came out, was there a negative reaction to it? Did it take some time uh, on your part to have to explain? People actually had to read it. If they just read the title, they said, what the devil did you write? Mm -hmm. When they wrote it, it's pretty clear. I want to ask, why did you write this book? What is it that prompted you to step back from the tactical and the strategic dimensions that others were writing about with Vietnam, not to mention the cultural, to take this larger systems-like analysis? That, to me, is the critical question, because by the time I left the Pentagon, and I came to Brookings from the Pentagon, I had been immersed in Vietnam. Um, I was working on it as director of policy planning, doing memos for the Secretary of Defense. And uh, I was also director of the Pentagon Papers Project, where I, uh, uh, heaven help me, got to see the whole breadth of our involvement in Vietnam from the end of World War II onwards. Mm-hmm. Uh, I drowned in it. And people kept on saying, people kept on writing, that, uh, you know, uh, uh, this this war went against our democracy. It, uh, we, we hadn't thought it through, that if we had really thought it through, we would have come out a different way. And they kept on missing what I felt was the central fact that we got into this war because we believed we had to for national security reasons, that uh, Vietnam was an essential domino. That word had tremendous ideological and political power, domino. 
Vietnam was the essential domino, and if it fell to communism, if it fell to the Soviet Union and China, in effect, then all of Asia would fall right behind it. Memos, in, even in the 1950s, referred to Vietnam as the Asian Berlin. We had no trouble understanding the critical strategic importance of Berlin, and now we were transferring that or adding to that Vietnam. You wrote the book while you were at Brookings, and um, I want to ask you about an episode that occurred. Um, there was a famous break-in at Brookings, an attempted oh, break-in. I was there at the time. You were there at the time. Can you yeah. can you tell us about that story? It's absolute nonsense. It's nonsense. For, okay. For some, the, the attempted break-in was not a nonsense story. That they would break in and find a copy of the Pentagon Papers in my locked safe uh, file in my Brookings office was nonsense. And, and I didn't have uh, a copy of the Pentagon Papers. And the they you're referring to are uh, members or people the associated Nixon with White the House. Nixon White House, right? Yeah. Well, they had it in their heads that I had a copy of this thing at Brookings in a file cabinet that was uh, uh, was like a safe, and they would have to crack into it. You know, of course, uh, the only safe I knew at Brookings at that time was in President Kermit Gordon's office. He actually had a safe, mm -hmm. which I'm sure wasn't difficult to crack into. And all our file cabinets, you could have just rolled open. Mm -hmm. In any event, I didn't have anything there. The copy of the Pentagon Papers to which I did have access, along with uh, a couple of my colleagues from the Pentagon, was in the top secret safe at the Rand Corporation, which, by the way, the White House knew. Uh, and which did not try to break in there either. No. Um, ask you a little bit but about. As you know, as you know, they decided not to break into Brookings because they said it was too well defended. <laughs> <laughs> much, 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 much more so than the Watergate, I guess. <laughs> um, I, I want to ask you a bit about your career path. You, you've served in government uh, more than once, and you also have worked for the New York Times. Isn't that unusual to have someone who has been both inside government and then join an organization whose job is to report on government, the good, the bad, and the ugly? Would you uh, recommend that as a career path? I would if you're if you're not political, if you're not politicized. I never really was uh, devoted to either political party. I, I rarely had any political identity, and most of the time I regarded myself as neutral politically. So it wasn't as if I served in an administration and then went to the New York Times to try to sell uh, what I'd been trying to do in government. Uh, I, I didn't have those kind of, how shall I put it, convictions. So, but, you know, I think most people do get convictions. And if you go in and out like that, it, it does pose a danger. I think that my writing at the Times held up, and I was, to, to my knowledge, very, very rarely accused of... Uh, uh, fomenting the views of the democratic administrations I served, uh, I would have worked for. I would have worked for Republican administrations too. Let's take a quick break for the next installment of Steve Hess Stories. Steve is the author of America's Political Dynasties from Adams to Clinton. 
The Moynihan office was in um, the basement, the west basement of the White House, as was the Kissinger office. So there was an interesting mix of things going on up there. It was put a stuffy group upstairs on the first and second floor. But down in the basement, it was, it was a little different. If you pictured it uh, schematically, uh, when you came in the door, the Situation Room was on the right. There was a desk in front of it, sort of a security desk. We were way around on the left. And if you just kept walking past, the, there was a couch. There were always celebrities sitting on that couch waiting to see Kissinger, who was always late. Uh, and, uh, and one day as I was passing by, I saw, my goodness, that's Kurt Douglas. And so I stiffened my back and I said, excuse me, Mr. Douglas, um, you're waiting for Dr. Kissinger? Yes. Oh, he's always very late. Perhaps uh, you would like to come into my office and have some coffee. I introduced myself, which was a lot better than sta sitting there being stared at by everybody. And so he came in. We, uh, I had a big office, and another big office next to me was Moynihan. So I quickly stuck my head in Moynihan's office. And, hey, I got Kurt Douglas in here. You know, so we had a marvelous about half hour, for 20 minutes, uh, and the three of us chatting away. We didn't talk politics. We talked films. Everybody had a talks films. And that was the sort of thing that happens to everybody who has has passed through the White House in their careers. And now back to the discussion with Les Gelb. In your new introduction to the book, you say that although the Vietnam War now seems to have been relegated to the past, like the Civil War, World Wars I and II, it actually lives. You say that the ironies of Vietnam continue to influence how the United States handles wars today. Can you talk about that, how it is that the Vietnam War lives on and in what way and what those ironies are? I think that's essential for people to understand. You know, the Vietnam War was incredible trauma, far beyond anything in Afghanistan or Iraq or, or in Syria, for that matter. Uh, it not only uh, uh, ended up involving 550,000 American troops in Vietnam when we finally negotiated a deal, 500. And fifty thousand. We had a, you know, hundred and twenty in Iraq, and about the same number in Afghanistan, and we had uh, fifty-seven thousand killed. What wounded was unbelievable. The costs were in the trillions, and our country was devastated. And we said, well, you know, we finally got out of there. These wars are over. This is the last war of the Cold War. Uh, last war of the United States against the Soviet Union and China and its uh, its pawn North North Vietnam. So the Cold War is being rung down. No more wars like this. But in fact, Vietnam turned out to be a model for the kind of wars that would be fought in the future. That is, all-out wars essentially within one country, with a lot of countries fighting in that war. That's what happened in Afghanistan. You know, I don't know how many different countries, 45 some odd different countries were fighting in Afghanistan along with the Afghans and the Taliban. And in Iraq, you have the, the same bewildering array of contestants all fighting within one country. It's unlike, you know, wars in history mm -hmm. where it was between nations, not within a nation. So... Vietnam really turned out to be much more portentous than people thought at the time or realize now. 
And a lot of the same attitudes we brought to Vietnam, foreign policy-making attitudes we brought to the wars in Iraq and Afghanistan and Syria and so forth. Um, first of all, and this is a very sad thing, uh, we didn't know squat about Vietnam or Indochina mm-hmm. or about Afghanistan or about Iraq or about Syria. America, uh, America's knowledge of these countries is, is very thin, very thin. The people who are making the, the decisions about the, these wars in particular knew almost nothing about the countries involved, nothing. There was no sense of the history and the culture and whatnot. And you can't make a sensible foreign policy that way. I mean, look what happened in Iraq, for example. We thought we'd get rid of Saddam and all the problems would be cured. And once that country fell apart, it was absolute chaos that we created. Uh, the chaos that still hasn't been um, uh, gotten rid of. And the country hasn't uh, achieved any kind of stability. And in Syria, uh, we, we didn't have any sense of how many different groups or where they were or what it would take to uh, defeat them or whether we could get other people involved. And also critical, Bill, also critical, is that we almost instantly start talking about all these other wars, as we did Vietnam, as our war. What can we do to fix the war? What can we do to win? Very rarely did we ask ourselves or build into our policy the question, what can they do? What can our allies and friends do? Whose interests and futures were being even more challenged and more threatened than our own? One of the points you make in the book is that civil wars cannot be ended by political compromise. So you still hold that to be true, and it continues to remain true today. I think so. Uh, It just doesn't work. And we had that experience in our own Civil War. Attempts were made by Lincoln on a number of occasions to um, to end the war through negotiations. And the South said, sure, fine, we keep the slavery. And uh, it was no deal. Uh-huh. In the case of uh, you know Vietnam or Syria or whatnot, these people just hate each other. And it's going to be very hard to carve out a deal with that degree of hatred, because the sense is if you lose, you lose not just the war, you lose your lives, your way of life, etc. My follow-up question then is, what does that mean for the idea of humanitarian intervention in civil wars? Are they are, are those kinds of interventions doomed to failure? I think so. And I think we should have learned that lesson a long time ago. But we commit the sin again and again, thinking that if we intervene militarily and hold an election that will produce a democracy, and that's ultimate naivety. It's ultimate careless use of American power and lives and treasure, because all you have to do is know a little history to know that after tumultuous revolutionary or civil wars, moderates never come to power, never came to power, except in one country, the United States of America. Mm. And they came to power there because they they had power before the war began. And and they had traditions of democracy. They had civil society. They had laws. They had state parliaments, colonial parliaments, and the like. 
So we could make that transition, but other countries haven't been able to do that. They don't because, have those foundations, yeah. Yeah, they had no foundation for it. Oh, you hold an election? What do you think that's going to do? Or you don't hold an election, you're just going to have war among the warring parties. The the the, uh, the groups in, within these countries that really hated each other but were kept away from each other by the dictator. The times we succeeded in moving countries toward democracy, it was never, never the result of a military intervention and then the snap of the fingers and they became democracies. Uh, we succeeded in turning South Korea, Taiwan, and Turkey into you know, pretty damn uh, good functioning democracies, but it took, uh, in each of these cases, about 30-plus years. It took the creation of civil society to underpin genuine elections. You end your new introduction with a call for good old American common sense when it comes to foreign policy. What exactly is that? Well, I think what made America great was was American pragmatism, good sense. You look hard at uh, situations without uh, blindfolders, particularly ideological blindfolders. Uh, we hate these people. Those people hate us. Uh, uh, we start bombing them. They'll they'll know better. That that isn't common sense. It just isn't. And what made this country great was Americans using uh, their pragmatism solving problems and realizing there's certain problems they couldn't solve, or at least not solve them right away. It would take time and a buildup. Uh, you know, as in the examples I gave about South Korea, mm -hmm. Taiwan, Turkey, we did take our time. We were quite smart about it, our leaders. Look at the, uh, the Marshall Plan uh, after World War II, where we decided we're going to take, you know, five, seven years and restore Western European economies to stabilize their political situations and make them ready to contribute militarily as well. That's common sense. One of the Republican candidates for the presidency, Donald Trump, seems to pride himself on common sense. He also decries a foreign policy elite governing Washington. Do you believe that is true about the foreign <laughs> policy elite? Well, you see, one of the problems is the foreign policy elite in Washington is very smart. They're talking about very smart people who are very good at arguing and uh, very ambitious people who want very good jobs in the next administration uh, who do turn to uh, excessive criticism who, of whoever is in power trying to solve problems. So we have a, a, you know, a very different situation from what used to be. You know, now we have, I don't know, 200 think tanks in Washington Right, I think all, I've heard 300, all, actually. But. You know, 300, whatever it may be, m m most of which are highly politicized. So you have people full, writing full-time, or talking to the press full-time, or talking to the Congress all the time about how everything the administration in power is doing wrong. It's very hard to govern under those circumstances. A concluding question. What is your sense of America's place in the world today? It's befuddling our place in the world today. I think the world has changed so much and so it changed so fast that we don't really understand it. Uh, we're, we're grappling with it all. We're, we really are befuddled. You know, here are just a few of the things that, 
that have happened. First of all, Europe, which was the center of the universe for hundreds of years, is now sort of a second-tier power in the world, at most. It's not the place you go to for you know, critical decisions or critical support. Their military capabilities are depleted. Uh, their economies are okay, but uh, not much beyond that. And their societies now are rent uh, by uh, refugees. Mm-hmm. But you can't really count on Europe the way one did in the past. They were our key ally, and they could put things on the table. It's a major change. The other is the rise of China, of course. Uh, China was never a world power. Now it is. And you have to take it into account everywhere, especially in Asia, where it has military punch as well. It doesn't have military punch beyond Asia, but it has it in Asia. And then you have this terrible rise of international terrorism, which is basically a threat within countries and doesn't require armies or even a platoon. It requires a few individuals prepared to lose their lives to kill a lot of others. And then finally, finally, and most importantly for us, you have the question of what is American power today? What can we actually accomplish in different situations? And we're beginning to sense that our power ain't what it used to be, but we don't quite know where it is or what it is or what we can do with it at this point. Now, I th- I think we, we still are the number one power in the world, but we've got to be much more creative about how to use that power to create uh, working coalitions to deal with particular problems. I think that's the way to deal with it. But uh, we're not nearly there yet as a country to adopt that kind of foreign policy. Thank you for taking the time to talk to us about the irony of Vietnam, and congratulations on this new Classics edition. I'm delighted with it. And that's it. You can find the irony of Vietnam on our website, brookings.edu. Finally today, here's former Education Secretary Arnie Duncan, now a Brookings non-resident senior fellow, speaking at a recent Brookings event moderated by Bill Galston. I came to D.C. with a fair amount of skepticism about what you could do at the federal level, yeah. particularly in the K-12 space because education is such a local issue. And I often tell the story when I was running the Chicago Public Schools, the Department of Education wasn't always my friend and <laughs> actually had to come to Washington to sit at the, you know, the conference table and to argue with Secretary Spellings at that time because the U.S. Department of Education was telling me that I couldn't tutor 25,000 of my poor children after school in Chicago because of some federal rule, kids who were far behind, who needed more help, who wanted to work harder, and somehow U.S. Department of Education was saying I couldn't do it. And to Secretary Spelling's everlasting credit, she listened to my logic and to our data and gave us the right. But that was my experience and that sort of the, the craziness of that, that they were actually standing in the way of what we were trying to do rather than being supportive or helpful was something I never forgot. Um, but what we were able to get done, whether it was a you know, huge increase in funding, a billion dollars for early childhood education, whether it was pushing very, very hard for higher standards, K-12, and we can talk about the politics of that, but I'm quite happy to see across the nation uh, many more states have college and career-ready standards. We're able to get graduation rates to all-time highs, um, uh, historic highs. On the higher ed side, huge investment in community colleges. 
with high, higher high school graduation rates and lower dropout rates, we had 1.1 million additional students of color go on to college. Um, big focus on putting more money behind evidence-based work, investments in charter schools, among other things. And honestly, if you would have said you could only do one of those things, I would have said sign me up. The fact that we were able to do so many of those things mm -hmm. honestly exceeded my wildest hopes. So feel, you know, for all the, the noise, feel unbelievably good about what we were able to try and do to, to give kids a chance in life. Visit our website to download the transcript and watch video of the event. And that's all for this edition of the Brookings Cafeteria. My thanks to our audio engineer and producer, Zach Colzer, with editing help from Mark Holscher. Plus thanks to Chris Anichi, Bill Fine, and Jessica Pavone, Eric Abalahi, and Rebecca Weiser, Brian Smith, and our intern, Sarah Abdelrahim. You can subscribe to the Brookings Cafeteria on iTunes and listen to it in all the usual places. You can send feedback email to bcp at brookings.edu. And if you haven't checked out our brand new podcast, I think you'll love it. It's called Intersections. Find it on iTunes and on our site at brookings.edu slash intersections. Until next time, I'm Fred Dews.